This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, the book of possibilities. When Peter Cole was 21 in the late 70s, he had a mystical experience, though I doubt that he would ever use that word. This is more or less how he tells the story. He had just left college for the second time and somehow parlayed his way into an apprenticeship with the poet Jack Gilbert. Gilbert was living in Greece at the time, on a small island called Peros. Think ribbon of beaches wrapped around a rocky interior, the bluest, greenest water, and then on the slopes and by the coastline, medieval villages that appear whipped up out of egg white. In the 60s and 70s, you could live there for cheap, although cheap also meant bare bones. Peter Cole describes living in a stone hut where he used a heavy-duty Swiss army knife to make a bed and a kitchen table out of scrap wood. There was no plumbing, he says in one interview, no electricity, just a primitive well which soon went dry. One day, Gilbert and Cole were out on the mountain for a hike. They're talking and winding their way up, when suddenly Cole stops in his tracks, seized by a flash, a vision, an understanding, clear as day, of what he was or should be, a Jewish poet. So this is what he did. He moved to Jerusalem. He threw himself into the study of Hebrew, began translating, was pulled into the deep end of Kabbalistic commentary and medieval Hebrew poems and Arabic poems that were written a millennium ago in Andalusia, in that fruitful period when Andalusia was home to Jews, Arabs, and Christians. And all the while, Peter Cole was writing his own poems in English, but rooted in that much older soil. And that's the path he's been on ever since even today, more than 40 years after his moment on the mountain. Here's Peter. It was a very clear sense I had that my poetry, if it was going to come at all, it was probably going to come through some sort of Jewish channel. And yet I, I wasn't raised as an observant Jew. I was raised in a fairly assimilated home, but I did have a, a Jewish education as a child, and so Jewish texts were deep in me, and I had learned Hebrew as a kid and then forgotten it. And so I felt I needed and wanted to explore that avenue, uh, that literature. And I met somebody who was living in Providence, Rhode Island, working initially as a uh, maintenance man at the Holiday Inn and then at a bookstore. And uh, I met a fairly notorious uh, professor of Judaic studies there who uh, fed me books and then and I said, I really want to learn, relearn Hebrew and really learn it properly. He said, go to Jerusalem for the summer. They have an intensive summer language instruction class. It's the best in the world. And um, see what happens. You know, it's not expensive and comes to worse, you'll have an interesting experience. And uh, I went there, sort of got a room in the old city and I had a phone number of a family friend uh, an Iraqi Jew who worked as a tour guide, and they said, you should just call him. He'd be useful and helpful to you. But, I, of course, I wanted to explore on my own. 
And I think maybe my second day there, third day there, before classes started, I called him on a payphone, and uh, he was very agitated and said, where are you? I'm coming right now to get you. And it was clear something was wrong. And then he came and took me home, and he said, your parents are going to call you. And that's when I learned that my brother had been killed in a car crash uh, a couple days before that. So that marked my entire sort of entry into relearning Hebrew and living abroad, and it was, you know, it was very, very powerful uh, year, and made me serious quickly. Yeah, I mean, I was already probably too serious to begin <laughs> with, but that uh, that that turbocharged the whole thing, uh, and it also it also fed my study of Hebrew. I I, I reimmersed myself in Hebrew with a tremendous desire, and you know, within months I was up to reading speed and started reading medieval Hebrew and not well, but trying to. What, what did you do? I mean, did you stay? Did you go back? I, um, when you say, what did you do? And it's like, everything slows down. And now I remember, what did I do? Um, I went back for the funeral, of course, and the shiva. And, um, and then I sat down with my parents. We decided what to do. And, and they said, if you want to go back, you should go back. Wow. And they, under, they understood how important it was to me. But what, what happened, you know, that phrase, what happened, is that uh, some, kind of, uh, some kind of doubling took place in my life. It's a, a very much a translational moment. I felt like I had be, been given his life and... And his energy, and so I that, that really fueled a lot of what I did. For I think it still fuels a lot of what I do in the best sense. In the best sense, yeah. And I was wondering, you know, can you tell me a little bit about you know who your brother was, and and if there was a sense in which you know there were traits that he had that you did not really have, and that you kind of leaned into once he was gone. Well, I wouldn't say that the we were completely different. He was totally grounded. Um, I mean, he read a lot, but he wasn't a literary person. He was on his way to being a farmer. I was on my way to being an egghead <laughs> and a poet. Um, so we were completely different in that sense. But we did share a room for a long time as, as kids, and we were just a year apart. And regardless of how similar one is or isn't or we were or weren't um it just runs very very deep that that you know shock of one day this very vital person is very vital and one day this person is you know a thousand pieces um so that that was that was a shock uh and um yeah you know, maybe we'll leave it at that yeah. Yeah. Sure. I, you know, as you were telling the story, I didn't even, like, I'd never thought about that, that, you know, we didn't have cell phones, obviously, that y your parents would have to go through this vague contact that they probably didn't know at all uh, to tell you this news days later. Yeah. You know, the whole thing of what we had <laughs> and didn't have, I have this with students all the time, because recently my wife and I were going through our papers and I used to write letters. I have boxes and boxes of correspondence with my friends. And you would write, I would write 
every single day and make the letter longer and then ship it off or write an aerogram every day and then you'd wait, you know, it would take two weeks for it to get to New York, let's say. <laughs> and they would take their time writing back or not and then two weeks back. And, yeah, just the whole different – and I, none of us had phones we didn't have phones in our rooms. Um, yeah, of course, yeah. as a young student. I mean, well, it wasn't even student. Israel had a, um, there was one phone company. It was a nationalized phone company. And it, it, it took about three years to get a phone line. Um, so if you were <laughs> sort of a transient, you weren't going to get a phone unless there was already one in the yes, place. Yes, yes. Uh, so, but people would just come over to your house and you would welcome them, and they would stay because they had walked across town. And there was a real sort of old, wor old world feel to it all. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. when you got the news about your brother, you said that it really made you even more serious about, you know, learning Hebrew and, and diving into that new place, that new culture. What, like, in what way? Like, why was that where you went with all of your, your energy and your focus? Yeah. I think it was a it was a principal thing first that um, you stop sort of looking over your shoulder. It's like, okay, this is it. You've got this time. Do what you need to do, what you want to do, and the hell with everything else. Um, and I just was very clear that this was the thing that that drove me. Um, this is this is words, poetry, poetry, which was very much unformed at that point. I was still on the sort of coattails of my undergraduate years. I was one year out of college. I was basically groping my way towards something that would become my own poetry, imitating other people serially mm -hmm. uh, as well as I could. Um, and, and then suddenly you're alone and you're just sort of dangling there over the void in a country where you don't know people and you're trying to learn a new language and not speak the old language but to write in it. Um, but meanwhile, that new language was coming in and I just couldn't get enough of it. And so I absorbed it with a kind of attention and, and intensity, I think, that um, was unusual and is, um, became a kind of gift. And I don't know if you, you feel this too, but I feel like every language has a, like a, a feel, you know, a feel in your mouth, Absolutely. for instance, you know. Uh, what's Hebrew? What does it feel like? Um, well, there's modern Hebrew, there's medieval Hebrew, there's medieval Hebrew from Spain, which it feels very much like, or much closer to Arabic by, by design. Uh -huh. but Hebrew is, has kind of very relative to English, I think, is a, it's a very elemental language. It, um, it, its beauty is in its fairly simple manipulation of, a, of three-letter roots. All words tend to be in very visible and audible three-letter roots. So you can you get a sense of language permutating all the time and roots shifting and, and anagrams also become language play is much more, I think, physical and elemental and palpable than it is in English and more common, too. Uh, so, okay, so apologies for the the really, you know, prosaic analogy, but is it kind of like a, a Lego kit then? Um, in some ways, in some ways, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a kind of sense of building blocks. I, you know, I, I have talked about that uh, mystical um, Kabbalistic Hebrew writings about language talk about the letters as building blocks of the cosmos. And so then three-letter groups of three letters that form a word with some kind of suffix or prefix, then they become like these sort of Lego constructions that can be or, you know. Right. Yeah, that's something that I also found so fascinating. I mean, in your newest, you know, your latest collection, Draw Me After, you have a series of poems that are kind of little character studies almost of each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I actually didn't, I mean, a while ago, I I was studying the Hebrew alphabet myself and I was learning it on, you know, with these little videos on this website, you know. And this person teaching the letters was also telling these stories. Like they would draw it and then they would say like, well, this looks a little bit like a man, you know, looking down. And, you know, this is a little bit like a little man reaching for, for the sky, you know. And every letter had like a story attached to it. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I'm just wondering what that is like as a writer then, you know, like when the tiniest elements of language already come charged with all this meaning. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's a great way to put it that um, those letter poems are character studies because after all, letters are characters. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so they definitely are character studies. And um, the Semitic letters and all, all the Semitic languages have a sort of pictographic background, but that that's only one of the ways I was approaching the letters. Sometimes I would sort of push off the image. Gimel looks like a camel, but then where does that go? And, um, and of course, the Hebrew po letter poems are in English, but the, I have the actual Hebrew letters there above the poems. So I like this idea that the Hebrew letters will be popping up in English. You know, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. No, not in this tradition. The letter contains the spirit and there is no life apart from that. And that, for, so for a writer, that's very powerful. I don't experience that as um, as paralyzing. I experience that as that's just ele electric, and it's something you know. Yes, it's high voltage, high risk. Watch out, you you know, you might not get <laughs> get across those tracks. On the other hand, if you learn how to work with them, all kinds of surprising things happen. And so, with that letter uh, series. What I wanted to do was convey to a, a reader of English poetry who knows nothing about Hebrew letters, doesn't care about Hebrew letters, has the same relationship to Hebrew letters that I probably have to, I don't know, Cyrillic or something, or Indian alphabets that I don't know anything about. Could I convey something of the, the thrill that I get from just being near them from the, the, the promise that they, they sort of convey to me. And, and so I tried. I just put myself in that place and said I don't really care how long it takes. If it takes me five years to get through the 22 letters, that's fine. I'm only going to write when I feel moved to write. And, um, and things came out. And, and it's as if the letters were some kind of chemical compound that were dropped into the beaker of me and some, they set something off. And then I would follow out whatever that was primarily through the vehicle of sound, which is to say through English letters, and see where it would lead me. 
Do you want to get to one of the alphabet sure. poems? Uh, well, sure. I was thinking uh, maybe this, the first one, uh, Aleph, which is on page four. Yeah. <clears throat> um, oops, some papers are falling. Maybe we can read Vub also. It would be an interesting one. Uh, but, sure. Um, sure. Should we start with Vub maybe? That would be just it's more surprising. Aleph because everybody does Aleph. <laughs> yeah. It's good. What, what page is that That's one on? That's 25. Uh, when you said you were studying um, Hebrew letters, trying to learn them online, and you mentioned this letter is a man looking down, I wondered if uh, if it was if they were talking about this one, because it in fact it looks sort of like an index finger with the top joint bent forward a little bit. Yeah, you know? yeah, I can't remember. I mean, like I have since completely forgot. I was ambitious for a second, and then you know, I know know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And as I say, I did, when I would start these poems, when there was a kind of critical mass of built-up pressure in me and felt that now was the time to write, uh, I really didn't know what it was, you know, I never know what these poems are going to be about. And I certainly didn't know that it was going to end up being a poem dedicated to Jeffrey Hartman, who was one of the great critics, literary critics of the second half of the 20th century, especially a Wordsworth critic, somebody that I knew here just a little bit toward the end of his life. Um, so this became Vov for Jeffrey Hartman in memoriam. This upright letter bows its head ever so slightly out of humility, much like Jeffrey toward the page it's fixed itself too as though by a hook or being hooked, really a summoning from within it or him to listen hard to what's barely there and maybe not quite yet between the lines to sit taking a stand and read learning straightness and when to bend so we come not to the end but once again and again to end <laughs> that is okay I'm happy that you picked this one I was wrong um this is great. You, I mean, you're wrong. I'm sorry. I realized halfway through. Ah, Elena probably has questions about Olive. No, but, look, yeah. I can ask questions about anything. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Um, you know what I love about this poem is, you know, that you write it's fixed itself to, as though by a hook or being hooked, really a summoning from within. And I I love that idea that a letter can do this hooking or this summoning. And, and, you know, I want to call back to something that you said earlier. You said that contrary to, you know, how this works for Christians, that for Jews, that the word is the spirit. You know, there is not some kind of transcendental realm beyond the word, you know. Or, or, that the, the, or the letter. It, the right, letter or itself. the letter. Yeah. So can you, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how familiar everyone listening is with that concept, but like if the spirit is in the letter... You know, then I can imagine that, of course, the letter is infinitely summoning. And so, again, you know, like, how um, do you experience yourself? And I, I don't want to know. I mean, I know you once said, like, oh, God, I, I get the bejesus from these questions about what I believe. You know, it's too personal. It's not. I'm not interested in that. Um, I just want to know beyond the religious part, like how do you feel summoned by right. letters 
or words or whatever that you know the word let's say yeah well also uh, as a kind of jewish almost cliche one of those cliches that's a cliche because it's true <laughs> um see what jews do not what they say they believe so what i do is i listen to i love listening to what words are telling me to do and where they're leading me. I, I love the physicality of words, not, not in, in such a way that I don't care about what they're saying. I don't care about meaning. Obviously, I do very, very much so. But I feel that a great deal of what words have to tell us and what letters have to tell us and sentences and lines and musical phrases and poems comes from the activation of the material, of the medium itself. That's what a lot of this book is really about that. Um, Draw Me After, the title, is from the Song of Songs. And in the Song of Songs, the female beloved, or they're both beloved lovers, uh, hears the male outside, doesn't yet know anything about this person, just this presence, and says, uh, draw me after you, let us run. And so it's this kind of, you know, call to promised eros. I mean, it's already the erotic charge is there. And, but the epigraph of the book takes that to another level, and it comes from the Kabbalistic scripture, the, basically the Kabbalistic scripture, the, the Zohar. And it says, well, what's really going on in that scene? That love story, that's just, that's a narrative. It's just what's really going on is that inside the words, there's meaning that's much, much deeper, right? The life is, the spirit is in the letter. We need to break yeah. open those letters and see what's really going on. And what are the other sort of, what are the hidden ways, hidden meanings in there? And so what the rabbis in this Zohar say is that this actually refers to a scene 3,000 years or 2,000 years before the creation of the world when all that existed were God, the 22 Hebrew letters, male and female, the letters are male and female, and these 10 channels of, of influence, sort of Pythagorean kind of channels of power, of divine power. And it says that the male and female letters called out to each other, draw me after you, let us run. Wow. Which is, now, so you ask, like, what does that do for a poet? That does a lot I for mean. this poet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a pretty good start, you know. Um, and and what is Jeffrey? Jeffrey was a master reader mm. of a master writer, Wordsworth, who was a master reader of landscapes and interior life. And Jeffrey could would sit down and, and see things in a Wordsworth poem that other people didn't see. And so you would wonder, were, were they actually there before he <laughs> see them? Did he create them? But of course, that's the letters giving birth to yeah. meaning. So the letters giving, you know, the, the exuding a certain spirit. Let's say right. Um, so that's what I believe. That's what I, that's what I do, and that's that's what I believe. Uh, the older I get, I'm a little more, um, little more willing to talk about some of these in religious context, mostly because I'm referring so much to religious texts more and more. Um, but these are sources of these of sustained meaning for me for years and years and years, both in terms of let's say my inner life, which is to do with my outer life in relation to other people, um, but also as a poet in relation to the poetry I write, the poetry I read, the, the audiences I speak to, um, the way I think about other people's poetry. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I was also wondering about that, you know, as you have spent decades of your life immersing yourself in medieval poetry, uh, medieval Hebrew poetry, you know, of which so much is kind of, I mean, there is other stuff. There's, uh, you know, stuff about love and wine. There's a lot of wine. Um, but, there, you know, a lot of these poems are about God and the, the writer's relationship to God. And and I was wondering, you know, did, do you feel like they they kind of pulled you deeper into um, a relationship with God that you maybe from the outset didn't have or didn't have to that extent? Um, the simple answer is yes. <laughs> as much as it horrifies me to say I have a relationship with God because I don't know what the word – in English, I don't know what the word God means. So I think I've, I've gone on record as saying um, – I don't believe in God in the sense of I, I don't know what the truth value of that statement in English has no – I don't know. It's just an opaque word for me. Um, but when I'm translating or reading these medieval poems in Arabic also, um, I, I believe those poems. Yeah. Also, the thing with the medieval stuff is that there are a lot of poems about God because – let's say half of that literature is explicitly written for the synagogue as part of the service. Uh. So obviously that's going to be about God. But the other half, as you noted, is not about necessarily about God at all. In fact, it can be about making fun of people who say <laughs> things about God that are so patently hypocritical. Uh-huh. Or it could be about, as you say, the sensuousness of, of wine drinking and music and imminent or developing eros. The whole really the whole range of human experience is there um, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with God. I'm teaching this stuff now at Yale and um, class on uh, Hebrew poetry from Muslim Spain. So it's like 10th through 12th century, and we're in the second week now. And so the you know very bright students obviously, and but everybody makes the same mistake of, of in the classes whenever I teach this. At the beginning, they're always looking for God everywhere. And so I told him last, last class, I said, look, at the beginning at least, if you think the poem is about God, just stop yourself and look, for, look somewhere else for a meaning. It's probably, at this stage in the class, I'm telling you, it's probably not about God. That's so <laughs> like, interesting. Get used to it that they're writing about other things. And, you know, so yeah. it, it, what you're saying is, is it like, you know, they use these words or this language that, you know, has like some God stuff in it because that was just the language of the time. But really... That was just how they talked about anything. Well, or, no. Well, there's that. There's that too. But the fact is that they really are writing about going, going to a party, and and seeing somebody really striking and wanting to get closer, and um, and the effects of the wine, or about having an enemy who stole one of your poems, and you're gonna you're gonna get back at him and make him suffer, or um, being at war. Because uh, some of them were involved in, in battles in Andalusia, or um, f- fleeing a city, becoming a refugee. So uh, that's what I mean. It's God might sneak in there, make a cameo appearance because someone says, you know, by God, I'll I'll get that guy. <laughs> uh, but that's not piety in the, yes. in the sense that you know, that's what that's that's what I always have to caution against. Is like these are real people with real temperaments, and that was a, that was. That was a shock for me when I encountered it, and in a way, the lesson 
for me as a writer is I write about these things, but I try never to um, – I try to ground them. I try to make it – make them part of the fabric of my daily life. And I try not to use those big words. Um, Wallace Stevens has got this line that I have sort of tattooed to the inside of my forehead – um, say what it is that you see in the dark, that it is that or that it is this, but do not use the rotted names. That's from The Man with the Blue Guitar. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing. And so I, I try not to use the rotted names, but I try to write or I find myself wanting to write about the things that those names point to. So it's a kind of deep translation. I really love this so much. I mean, I, I had this... Um this teacher of translation at some point, and she said, really the horizon that you're working towards is you want to give the reader of your translation an experience that feels similar to the experience that the reader of the original has. That's the horizon that you're working towards. Um, but that was just when I was translating Russian, contemporary Russian, you know, I mean, some of these texts were 19th century, but that's not still not terribly far away. Whereas what you're doing is you're taking texts that are a thousand or many thousands years old, and you're, you're trying to render them in contemporary English. So how... <laughs> How much do you get into the world, you know, the the day-to-day of people then to try and make something that is equivalent? I want to know as much as possible about everything. I want to know the... Rosemary Waldrop has a wonderful essay about translating. She quotes uh, Gadamer about the, the third dimension. What is the unit of translation? Is it the word? That's what you know, people used to think. No. Is it the phrase? Is it the entire work? Or is it the entire universe or co- larger context that the original work existed in mm-hmm. and therefore the context that your translation will exist in? I mean, which is a beautiful thing because then you're really into the ultimate kind of ripple out relationship of everything to everything. And so I want to know as much about that ambient dimension of whatever it is I'm writing as possible, whether it's an old 1,000-year-old text, 2,000-year-old text, or a drawing that somebody did last year, and I'm quote-unquote translating it. Um, so I think the principle's the same, but um, to when you're dealing with older, the older kind of text you asked about, the medieval text, it's a lot harder to get back to a plausible sense of what life might have been like. And, of course, you're imagining it. Translating older work like that is, is fiction. <laughs> it's fiction. You know, you're, you're making a plausible fiction, and part of the plausible fiction is that we're going to think of it as fact. I love, mm-hmm. I love the admission. That, um, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, I was hoping if we could read you know, one or maybe two of of these really old, old poems. I'd been reading through your anthology, The Dream of the Poem. So it's all translations from this, you know, medieval Andalusia, really, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, where, yeah, Arabs and Christians and Jews all live together and kind of cross-pollinated and all that. Um, Well, also, (laughs) 
when I looked at the dates, like the Middle Ages, basically, in Spain, you know, I looked it up and it's something like 1,016 years, which is just an unimaginable stretch of time. Like if we would transpose it to today, we would start today, the period would end somewhere in the year 3,040-something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just unimaginable, you know. Yeah. Well, on the Hebrew side, the period is a little shorter. Right. So it's, but it's still 500 years. Right. Yeah. So, okay, so, you know, when, when I ask you, so can you describe what you have found out about this world? Obviously, you pick, you know, what stretch of that world you want to talk about. But, you know, maybe to bring it in context to the poem, so the poem that I was thinking about, or the two poems, they're both by... I'm going to mispronounce his name, Shmuel Hanagid. Hanagid. Yeah. Hanagid, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the world that he was from, about him and about his world? So he was one of the people I had in mind when we were just talking about those poems and the wine and the <laughs> military campaigns. And he was, he's almost, um, as a character too good to be true or too good to believe that he actually existed because he rose, at least the sort of legend has it, that he rose from poverty as a refugee through the discovery of his skills as a letter writer. He would, you know, you still find that in, in Middle Eastern countries. You still see in Jerusalem where there are a lot of people who can't write. And so you have people who are available like in Jerusalem used to be signs, you know, um, shoemaker and letter writer. The guy's a shoemaker and he also w will write letters for you, you know. And Hanagid was famous because his letters eventually made it into the court at Malaga where he was a refugee and impressed the people at the court so much that he was brought into the court. And he eventually became the head of Andalusian Jewry and the prime minister of the Muslim city-state of Granada wow. and the commander-in-chief of its army. Which oh, is, okay. Yeah. Wow. Speaking yeah, of yeah. Renaissance man, I mean, you know, Renaissance man in the Middle Ages. Too, but, leave leave <laughs> the other things out because otherwise the, <laughs> our microphones will explode. But um, he wrote about everything, but all the subjects I mentioned. Um, yes, he was also an expert in religious law. But that didn't stop him from all the, doing all these other things. Mm -hmm. um, he, <laughs> let, well, Can you let, imagine being like the, the head of the army and a scholar on religious law? Like, well, I say just... that you know, he's sort of like the, the Henry Kissinger of his day, which <laughs> oh, was just, just turns it all into a joke. Yeah, but, but there is a sense of like he had that kind of power and tremendous learning. But also he's widely admired by, for the most part, his, let's say, by his Muslim contemporaries and peers, there are also fights. And this wasn't all a, a, a utopia. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was real rivalry. Um, but he obviously had, for lack of a, a better term, people skills. Um, he, was, he was a good ruler. He ruled for a long, long time. He was a good commander of the army. Again, he's a commander of a Muslim army. So it's... He he's, in many ways, he's a one-off character. But but he would he could write poems like. Let's just uh, pick. Uh, the multiple troubles of man. Ugh, that's exactly the one I picked. Okay, <laughs> okay here we are. <laughs> the multiple troubles of man, my brother, like slander and pain, amaze you. 
Consider the heart which holds them all in strangeness and doesn't break. That's a bit like Nietzsche saying that the thought of suicide gets you through many a sleepless night. <laughs> you know, that poem has gotten me through <laughs> riots. Some pretty rough, rough moments. And that's, so that's an epigrammatic poem that he's got, I think, 2,000 epigrams, uh, wisdom literature based on the one hand modeled after the book of Proverbs, but on the other hand, very much modeled after Arabic poetry. Uh-huh. All of this stuff is modeled heavily on Arabic poetry, um, written with a biblical vocabulary, but, but all the, the genres are taken largely from Arabic. Uh, and for all we know, this could be a translation from Persian to Arabic to mm. Hebrew. That doesn't matter. What matters is the animating touch. It comes alive. And, the, you know, let's say, it, let's say it comes alive in English. That's part of that whole tradition. That it doesn't matter where it comes from. The ideas of originality are very, very different. Uh, ostensibly, this comes from wisdom. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And wisdom doesn't have borders and doesn't have nationalities. And, but, the, but it has to be completely animated within each language that it sort of finds itself. I was wondering if we can get to another point. I mean, I love this author. I'm sorry I'm ignoring everyone else in the book. but um, he's, a, he's an amazing if, character. An amazing character. Yeah, I was wondering if we My can... father... Oh, sorry. Go not, for it. not to brag, but, <laughs> but to just show you how ridiculous this whole thing is. My father was a, a blessed memory, was a kind of very civic-minded lawyer who was a lifelong Boy Scout. Boy Scouts was one of his big things. And he would always go off as uh, you know, a man in the 60s and 70s, these Boy Scout jamborees and things like that. I wouldn't, wouldn't be caught anyway <laughs> in such a thing. He would read, he would stand up in front of you know, 3,000 Boy Scouts and read them a Shmuel Hanagid poem. Yeah, and he, he did not like poetry, and he didn't have a clue what I was up to. What? But yeah, I would, when I heard that, I just thought, okay, that's some kind of strange victory. I don't know what it yeah, is. Absolutely, no, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. I think. Or if else a poem these poems are a lot worse than I thought they <laughs> were. <was. Yeah>. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they are so vivid. Like I already told you that, but there, there was this one poem where I just had to pinch myself. Like I, because you know, I first read that one. It's called the market. And oh, I first that's an amazing poem. It's amazing. I first yeah. read it in your book. Um, it's a book, New and Selected, which has translations and, and, and your and own qualms, poems. Yeah. You know, it's right. called Hymns and Qualms. And, yeah. you know, you, you only at the end of each poem in very g- sort of subtle, grayish kind of font, you put, you know, like nothing if you wrote it. Or you put, you know, by whatever, you know, this uh, author from that century. And so when I read that poem, I thought that was you, you know, walking through contemporary Jerusalem and writing what Good. you saw. That's and, what I wanted. And so yeah. then it was, can you remind me from what century? Uh, 11th century. Yeah, great. That's, that's literature. Pound, Ezra Pounds and, and E.M. Foster, lots of people, and the rabbis talk about, you know, there's no er, the rabbis say there's no earlier or later in, in the Torah. It's all happening at the same time. And Pound said, all ages are contemporaneous. And Ian Foster has this thing of, what is literature? It's, it's writers of, of all ages sitting in like a big reading room like at the British Library. <laughs> um, and in, in writers' minds, that is, yeah. that is what's happening. Um, so yeah, this is a poem that I, I've, I've read it 
all over the world, and you don't have to say anything about the 11th century. You can just read it. But it's even wilder when you think of it as being the 11th century. Uh, the market. I crossed through a market where butchers hung oxen and sheep side by side. There were birds and herds of fatlings like squid, their terror loud as blood congealed over blood and slaughterers' knives opened veins. In booths alongside them the fishmongers and fish in heaps and tackle like sand and beside them the street of the bakers whose ovens are fired through dawn. They bake, they eat, they lead their prey, they split what's left to bring home. And my heart understood how it happened and asked, Who are you to survive? What separates you from these beasts, which were born in new waking and labor and rest? If they hadn't been given by God for your meals, they'd be free. If he wanted this instant, he'd easily put you in their place. They've breath like you, and hearts would scatter them over the earth. There was never a time when the living didn't die, nor the young that they bear not give birth. Pay attention to this, you pure ones, and princes so calm in your fame. Know if you'd fathom the worlds of the hidden. This is the whole of man. So that the, the end of that poem, for example, is from Ecclesiastes. Mm. But in Ecclesiastes, when it says this is the whole of man, it's referring to the Torah, the law, but it's a tacked-on verse at the end that people think were tacked on for sort of moral reasons of propriety. Um, but he turns it and says, no, you know, he's using it in a much, much freer way. This market scene, that's the whole of man. I mean, it's incredible. You know, what I also was kind of depressing and riveting about these very old poems is that apparently we human beings need to be told the same lessons over and over and over again, right? Like, you know, this, this, this. I certainly do. Right. Yeah, same. <laughs> But like also every generation, you know, like we never learn yeah. that, that, you know, the accident of birth is just that, you know, you could have been born as a beast brought to slaughter or you could have been born as the butcher. Um, that's actually, for me, that's not necessarily a depressing thing because there's something beautiful about that. These, the same things sustain us that sustained other people too. I was wondering if we can really change course here and talk about Palestine. Because, you know, I was reading this essay that you wrote 10 years ago, and in this essay you describe sitting on a park bench in New Haven, and, you know, while you're sitting there looking around, you're thinking about, you know, your imminent return to Israel, uh, and you describe the place in, in this essay <clears throat> as being in moral collapse. Now, as you know, of course, things haven't exactly improved since then. I mean, they just elected the most right-wing government in the history of the country, and immediately the violence towards Palestinians has ex exploded again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because this is so far from 
this world that you like to immerse yourself in, you know, this world of cross-pollination and cohabitation of, you know, medieval Andalusia. Um, how do you, how do you live with those two visions almost of what's possible and of what's not contradicting each other? Yeah. By spending five and a half months a year in New Haven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, first of all, the Andalusian, what's important to keep in mind about the Andalusian period is that it also had its serious ups and downs and eventually collapsed um, over after a period of 150 years. Political situation changed. So that the sort of Andalusian model at its best is, is an idea. Mm. Uh, it was a reality too. And it's an idea that I think I do think is a valid idea and it's, 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 it remains as valid as it ever was. And some people would say it never was valid. It's mm. delusional. Mm. And that's basically the the discussion in Israel-Palestine is, is, is any kind of coexistence, let alone a fertile, a generative, mutually enhancing coexistence possible? Um, the people in charge, uh, certainly on the Israeli side right now, would say, No, it's delusional and destructive. Um, and there are certainly people on the Palestinian side who, who would say the same thing. Maybe fewer people, but enough people. So how do I live with that? Um, painfully, it's, 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 it makes me sick. Uh, what goes on every day, mostly in Palestine and the West Bank, Gaza, but generally in, let's just call it, Israel, Palestine. Most Americans, if they if they were faced with it, if they were, they just wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe the kind of coarseness and cruelty, and um, it's really kind of barbarousness that that takes place under Israeli law or military law. That's the thing; it's actually military law, and in the name of. A lot of things, and I speak as a very proud Jew and all that, um, but in the name of um, Judeo-Christian values and American tax dollars, and it's, it's just, it's unbelievable. And I don't spend that much time there, but I have friends who are there all the time just trying to bear a kind of Gandhian witness, uh, nonviolent witness to what's going on and protect the crops or land of Palestinians who are having land confiscated all the time and the, the level of humiliation and the number of, of also deaths. It's been steady. So now everybody's up in arms, uh, as it were, and horrified by this new right-wing government and, in fact, by all the deaths now in the last week. But this has been going on for a long time. There's nothing surprising about this. Is it more horrible because right now more people are being killed and and Israeli troops are going into villages in the middle of the night and uh, enforcing collective punishment or Jews are walking out of synagogues and being gunned down? But it's the same problem that's been around for a long time. Today, while I was shaving, I was thinking um, Jews have been able to do such amazing things, you know, come up with all kinds of inventions and and they can spy. Israelis 
you know, they might be right inside your headphone right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're great at it. They're amazing. And they can't figure out how to just kind of try to make something sustainable and human and economically viable work. Yeah. That's insane. To me, that's insane. Um, I, you know, I used to live with it more by doing a certain kind of literary activism, which is much harder to do these days for all kinds of reasons, normalization. And, oh, interesting. But, but in my way, I try to, through, through teaching, through writing, pointing the direction through poems here and there. I don't know that, you know, it just, it, these are all small acts of nonviolent resistance and redirection of attention. And that's, I think, all you can do. Yeah, I mean, it just struck me because, like, all of your work, you know, for the past, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe half a century is, is, is kind of slightly overstating it. But something like that, you know, is um, is really celebrating the other thing, you know, is, is really celebrating all the ways in which human beings sort of come together and, yeah, sure, there's friction and all that, you know, um, but, but that were essentially curious about one another and learning from each other and um, creating because of one another. Uh, and I, I just wonder, you know, as, as such a kind of um, translator, again, of Judaica into English, right? If you feel in a way like you want to you wanna explain almost, like, yeah, but this is not what Judaism is or has to be, you know what I mean? Like it's this is not the Judaism I know. You know, do, do you ever feel kind of that well, I it's do, your but role? That is, yeah. Part of it is the Judaism. That's, that's the thing. Is, is we, have to, we have to acknowledge that that is there in Judaism, or let's say in the history of Jewish civilization. Judaism, whatever Judaism, I mean, was the Bible Judaism? Not really. That was pre-Judaism in many ways. Um, but... And I think of the Bible as a kind of uh, sort of I Ching. It's a book of possibilities. Um, the worst things are in there so that you will know that they are in you possibly and around you. And it's not a, it's not a book of, oh, this is the best way to, to live. It's not a book of prescriptions. It's a book of possibilities and a book of more of a book of questions in that way. Um, But Judaism contains the seed of some horrible things. So does the history of Christianity. So does so does pretty much every religion, and probably most non-religions too. I mean, getting rid of religion doesn't make people necessarily any kinder. But there is a way, of course, for my own well-being uh, and mental health, let's say, um, in which I I need to continually find the um, find the rich and deeply human aspects of a culture that is right now being hijacked um, by a, you know, an extreme element, let's say, or by a, by a, a sensibility and temperament and um, ideology that I find repulsive. Um, and I know that other poets are there in Israel, this is a real problem. What happens when the vocabulary uh, of, of um, 
both historical vocabulary and vocabulary of, let's say, inner life, which has come up through the Bible and religious texts, uh, by and large, has been poisoned. That's a, that's a big issue for people who are writing in Hebrew, and I think it's a big issue for anybody who's dealing with this material, period. So, yeah, there is... Um, if anything, I'm, I, I'm rescuing it for myself, just for my own uh, sanity and survival. I was thinking of maybe giving the last word to a Palestinian poet. Um, Taha Muhammad Ali? Yes, exactly. Exactly him. I was, I was thinking of that poem, Twigs. It's on page 244 in Hymns and Qualms. 244. Yeah. So this is by Taha Muhammad Ali, a um, Palestinian poet who was born in the village of Safariya, which itself has a whole layered history, was the town where the Mishnah, the Book of Jewish Law, was codified. Um, he was born in uh, 1930s, and that village at that point was pretty much like a 19th or 18th century village in terms of the, its development. And he grew up entirely in a peasant culture, um, had two or three years of formal schooling, was totally self-taught, um, became a... The, in 1948, the village was bombed and people f fled the village and he, would, like a lot of the people from the village, fled to Lebanon and then he came back illegally into the new state of Israel the following year and settled in Nazareth, which is very close to Sepharia. And he lived his entire adult life in Nazareth near the Church of the Annunciation First, he had a grocery store. Then he owned a souvenir shop. And he had a souvenir shop his entire life and wrote poetry on the side, taught himself English, taught himself the classical Arabic tradition, and was an amazing, amazing guy. Twigs. Neither music fame nor wealth, not even poetry itself could provide consolation for life's brevity or the fact that King Lear is a mere 80 pages long and comes to an end, and for the thought that one might suffer greatly on account of a rebellious child. And so it has taken me all of 60 years to understand that water is the finest drink and bread the most delicious food, and that art is worthless unless it plants a measure of splendor in people's hearts. After we die, and the weary heart has lowered its final eyelid on all that we've done, and on all that we've longed for, on all that we've dreamt of, all we've desired or felt, hate will be the first thing to putrefy within us.
Peter Cole is the author of eight poetry collections, including Hymns and Qualms, The Invention of Influence, and his latest, Draw Me After. And he published more translations than I can mention, including an anthology of medieval verse from Andalusia titled The Dream of the Poem. And together with his wife, Adina Hoffman, he wrote an investigative literary travelogue about the discovery of a long-forgotten sort of storage room with hundreds of thousands of scraps of sacred and secular medieval Jewish texts. That book is titled Sacred Trash. Peter Cole is a MacArthur Fellow, a Guggenheim Fellow, an NEA and NEH Fellow. He was awarded a Penn Award for Poetry in Translation and a Penn Translation Fund grant, as well as the TLS Translation Prize, the National Jewish Book Award, the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award, and our very own poetry magazine's John Frederick Nims Prize. He divides his time between Jerusalem and New Haven, where he teaches at Yale. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus and Erik van der Weste. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>